0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. I'm here with Elliot. Hey, Jesse. And Marilyn. Hey, guys. What's up? And last week, we talked about swimming. This week, we are moving on to, you guessed it, cycling. We're going to talk about riding bikes. Bikes, bikes, Um, (laughs) bikes. To kick things off, I have some very well-prepared questions. I'm going to fire at my my co-host here question and these these are going to be somewhat rapid fire so try and keep these brief question number one i want to know the biggest skills mistake that you've made riding a bike that was like your own fault easily preventable that um that yeah was totally skills-based not like a car cut you off and you did a front flip over the hood because that was the car's fault Something that we can kind of learn what not to do. That is a skill that uh, you know maybe a, a triathlete might want to have. Marilyn, you look ready. You look like you've got this one. No.
1: Oh God, <laughs> I uh, I definitely have one where I made a big boo boo. I was crossed wheels with somebody and wasn't paying attention, and they suddenly slowed down and turned in turned in the direction that my wheel was on the, the side that they turned into. And I was like completely eyes, not on the fries, kind of just da- dozed off and I landed on my butt in the middle of the road so fast and um, <laughs> really actually really injured myself pretty badly for, for quite some time. So it was just like a matter of a momentary lapse of concentration, overlapped wheels, wasn't really paying attention to what was going on, and boom, hit the ground. So that's completely preventable for sure.
2: I have three, but I'm going to keep it to one. I'm going to choose the one that's the most embarrassing. Uh, I was doing a triathlon. I believe this was my second or third year of triathlon and uh had a decent swim for me came out and uh was riding along and saw multiple orange signs that said slow both on the right hand side of the road and on the spray paint on spray painted on the ground it said slow and then it got bigger and said slow and then it said slow and then there was a person with a flag waving that said slow so of course i thought well that's not for me and uh you know just took that turn uh going about 25 miles an hour and there was a reason it said slow and i got to spend the next race the rest of the race with gravel from my ear to my ankle embedded in me and i couldn't use my hands while braking needless to say i i crashed so no, it's not me it wasn't me <laughs> i literally was like yeah it says slow i see that but i can hit this corner it's not that big of a deal it was a big deal for me so <laughs> awesome. Lessons
0: learned. Um, so my, my most embarrassing is, is actually while I was still running with the bike, I I can make mistakes without even being on the bike, but (laughs) I, I was, uh, I was running out of T1 pushing my bike and the pavement was like a little bit slick and changed from carpet to the cement. And I was running with my Like cleats on my shoes. And I took one step on the cement right as I was coming around a corner where there was a crowd of people cheering. And as soon as my cleat hit, I immediately fell straight on my ass, like feet up in the air. Bike went flying into the into the rail. And all the people were like clapping and cheering. And then it went dead silent. And like my my parents are standing there and everyone's just like And then I got up and then they were like cheering again, but it was, uh, it was a pretty awesome way to start 112 mile ride is on your ass for 30 seconds.
1: Um, oh God, that's awful.
0: <laughs> don't do those things. Don't do those things. All right, next question. M- mistake you've seen that was again, like a skills related thing. Um, and to give you guys a chance to think for a second, since I've had a moment to think I'll go first. Um, so I was riding in a group and there was a group of like four of us and a deer ran across the road in front of us. And so we all started slowing down and I looked over at the person next to me Ray, as he grabbed his brakes and I looked over and saw him look back at the deer, then looked over again. And the next time I looked over, he was completely inverted and I was just staring at his head upside down. And, and then I looked over again and then I just heard this giant crash and he so he just grabbed all front brake and did a complete flip and like probably almost landed it, but you know, didn't, didn't land it just big pile of carbon. Um, he was eventually fine. He had to get a ride home, but,
1: um, where all the story yeah. is don't just use front brake.
0: Yeah. But the, the image of him completely upside down, it got like burned into my brain. And like, I, every time I think about it, I can still see him just like totally scared, just sunglasses, helmet inverted next to me. It was amazing. Jeez. All right.
2: I have one that's somewhat a negative story. So I'm going to put it, put myself in the middle, Marilyn, you can go last. Uh, this is something I witnessed, or I guess that's the question. Something I witnessed, I think you were actually on the ride, Jesse, but it was a large group ride. It was the shootout. And what I witnessed was one guy was riding along and in a hundred person group ride, sometimes people swerve. He swerved what I can, would consider completely normally uh, in a big group. And a kid of, let's say, lesser years decided that he did not think that guy should be on the group ride because he swerved a tiny bit. And if you've been on any group rides, you would know this was well within the bound of normal. So he proceeded to yell in this guy's ear for like three straight minutes and was touching him and shoving him. And eventually the kid the the guy who was getting screamed at just turned and pushed the kid away from him because he was essentially attacking him on the road and the kid was not prepared at all and swerved over went into the next lane and crashed three people out so the moral of the story is don't attack someone in the middle of a group ride cuz you just might not be paying attention to what you need to be paying attention to so like i said it was negative but i think that's i think sometimes people realize like You see people yelling at group rides, and yelling is never the answer. You know, like we're we're all friends. We're all trying to be have safe and have fun, and you can be competitive, but you don't need to yell. You don't need to touch somebody else.
1: Yeah, probably a good idea to not start a fisticuffs fight on the bike.
2: (laughs) <laughs> Especially when he wasn't prepared for, I was like, oh man, you were in over your head.
0: It but never, anyways. It's never cool to fight in spandex. It's, it's not.
2: Never, No, <laughs> whoa,
0: whoa. Wrestling. Okay. Okay. Well, all
2: right. yeah. if, you're, if you're on a padded mat and there's a judge and there's just <laughs> two of you, it's not so bad. Oh, all yeah. right, all right. Anyways,
1: I'll lighten it up a little. This isn't so skills related, but I see it all the time with beginners. And I've even seen it with some pretty advanced athletes when they leave the same thing. They're not even on their bike yet. They leave transition and they got their helmets on backwards <laughs> and like, you see race photos afterwards and you know, People it's like, all
2: race helmet like helmet on
1: backwards, just giving it no idea that it's on backwards. I'm like, God, wasn't that uncomfortable? Like, didn't you notice? So not a skill situation on a bike, but definitely a mistake I see from a lot of beginners, which is absolutely hilarious when you see it and they have no idea why you're laughing so hard.
0: Yeah. All right, so don't do that either. <laughs>
1: it's a cool train. If you, you know, there's a certain cool. One of the things to know about cycling is there's a certain coolness factor, and that's just as
2: important. Buckled it's helmets, on super cool, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm being serious. I'm kidding.
0: No, yeah, but you're. I mean, you you guys are both right. Like, definitely, there's an etiquette and like a, a how you should look to ride a bike. It's uh, it's definitely a little bit different than running, um, in that sense. But what uh, we we're going to talk about today is kind of this, the same breakdown as last time where we're going to talk about if you're a beginner cyclist, some skills you can focus on to kind of jump up to that next level of proficient. And if you're a pretty strong cyclist, but you want to know how to become a great rider, what you can kind of do to help level up your game in that sense. So for starters, we're going to target the, the beginner cyclists that are just getting into cycling or just getting into triathlon you've been riding for a bit, you know how to ride a bike. You, you have clips on your pedals and, and all that stuff, but you want to kind of get to that next level in riding. And so we're going to talk about a few things, a few skills that you should definitely like work on having in order to get yourself to that next level.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, if we're going to break it down right to, It's very, very beginner and it might, um, sound like pretty simple stuff, but when we try and execute it on the road and different road surfaces, different conditions, winds, handling our bikes, all these things, I think it's, um, really important that the riders get comfortable with being able to reach down and grab their water bottles. Or if you have water bottles behind you, I see a lot of athletes, um, lose, lose concentration, lose their, their ability to keep the bike going straight, uh, lose momentum, all of these things, just because simply they're not comfortable taking their hands off their handlebars and getting their nutrition, getting their water bottles. And then one of the key factors to being, you know, being able to ride well for a long time and then being able to run well is get that nutrition in, right? So if, as you get used to riding your bike, one of the things that you can really work on as a beginner And we're going to go through a whole lot of things, but the, one of the first things I like to see my athletes be able to do is, Hey, can you, can you navigate the different road surfaces and conditions with the equipment that you have and be able to reach down and and get your nutrition, get your water bottles, drink, ride with one hand, look to the right, look to the left, be able to keep your bike going in a straight line. Um, that would be, you know, the first place you want to, I even have athletes start that process on the trainer. Like, Hey, can you reach down without you know, changing the direction you're looking and are you comfortable just taking one hand off the handlebar, that kind of thing. So those, those real basics, things like that are are a good place to start.
0: Yeah, that was the first thing on my list too, is, was comfort on the bike. And I think that that spans the entire, the entire realm of cycling, right? Like even like for myself, once I get going on a fast descent, like say over like 40 miles an hour, I get a little nervous. And I think if I was if I was more comfortable and a little less nervous, I could go a little faster, I could, you got a little more speed. So I think being comfortable on the bike is, is an overarching theme, but I think it definitely, Elliot's already laughing at me, is a, is a, is a skill that you should really start with right away. And I think that's, um,
2: yeah, Elliot, what I'm going to jump in because for my notes, for the beginner section, it says it's cool to be comfortable. <laughs> and then there's a whole bunch of things listed off uh and so like um we're talking about being comfortable on the bike and finding like your balance points on the bike taking your hand off the bike being able to turn to look for traffic being able to to signal you know so you can ride safely in traffic um so a bike fit goes a really long ways and and maybe we're assuming somebody has a bike fit but i think there's a lot of people who maybe think they're fit to a bike and haven't had a a good fit. And they don't actually know what a good fitting bike feels like. So if you're really not sure, um, it's getting easier and easier to find information out online. So you can try to fit yourself, but a good fitter is going to go a really long ways. And I, I feel like we've said this in a bunch of different podcasts, but that bike fit is really going to help you then find your balance point so that when you are going to reach your water bottle, or the next step is like cornering and braking and and finding How early do you need to brake, and then real and learning the difference between a front brake and a rear brake, and how sometimes you're going to use them both together, and sometimes you're going to use one more than the other, Um, and and how you use momentum through corners. Um, I think that's kind of the next step, and also realizing your body shifts when you corner. You know, you don't just sit on your bike. It's not like you're in a car and you just turn the wheel. Your whole body moves over the saddle as you're cornering.
1: And I think also like part of being comfortable on a bike is making sure that you choose equipment that is suitable for your level. So you see a lot of beginners go ahead and, you know, it's, some of the stuff is really cool. It's super cool. I mean, we're all tempted by as like super cool wheels and helmets and arrow bars and these really tricked out arrow positions and all that stuff. So making sure when you do find a bike fitter that you're really, um, you're really upfront about what you're, uh, you're, where you are at in, in your development and where your ability level is, and then make sure you know, cause as you progress and grow, that's going to like, we're going to talk about your position is going to change a lot. It's going to get more and more aggressive. So start in a position, like you're saying, Elliot, that you can, you can handle your bike really well. And then make sure that the equipment you choose is equipment that you can handle on the roads and conditions really well. So, you know, if you're looking at wheels, yeah, super arrow wheel is really cool and it's really fast, but it's only super cool and super fast. If you can handle it, it's really not fast. If you're getting, you know, as soon as the wind hits that, deep dish front rim and you're getting blown all over the road and, you know, you lock your arms straight and, and you slow down and, and grab a handful of front brakes and flip over. Right. So it's really important knowing, um, what your ability level is and making sure that that equipment matches that based on, on where you're at. I think, you know, getting good advice from either good coaches or good bike fitters will, will help you along with that as well.
2: Yeah. Even things like how, how tight you have your brakes. Everyone likes their brakes in different spots and, and some people like them really tight. Some people like them loose. And, and some people like one different than the other, which I personally think is kind of weird, but um, it's whatever makes you comfortable on that bike. And you have to remember if you're a beginner, there's a lot of like danger involved in cycling. So you wanna reduce, you wanna increase your control of the machine whatever that does and so sometimes that's like choosing the saddle that feels comfortable to you or maybe you have double wrap bar tape because it's more comfortable or maybe you ride at lower psi because it's more comfortable i think the big thing i wanted to say was like bib shorts are amazing i realize they're not triathlon shorts maybe you're not going to race a triathlon in them there's a reason people who ride a lot wear bib shorts because they're really comfortable and you know chamois technology in the last 20 years has just progressed and i think we're all grateful for it
0: one hundred percent. Yeah, I love a good chamois. Um, going back to the the equipment choice, I just wanted to tell a quick story about my my first Kona, where I borrowed a wheel set because that was the cool thing to do. So I got on a pair of four hundred fours, and my shoulders have never hurt so much on the run from holding the bars upright the whole time because it was so windy. So that was a uh, a poor equipment choice for my skill level at the time. That was the most sore thing for me after the race was my shoulders. So I was gripping, gripping a bit too tight
2: from the whole whole race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, you know, know." I've
1: I've seen I've seen that. You know, it's a bit of an issue now because um, you know, really truly understanding what your level is, how you get set up on equipment in your bike, because you'll see, you know, there's these these great bike fitters out there, and and a really good bike fitter is going to understand what it means to fit a beginner versus an advanced athlete, and not just put a beginner athlete in a very you know, super, super aggressive position with narrow, you know, the, where the hands are really high up by the forehead and it's really narrow and really low and aggressive. And, you know, say you've got only a five foot three, you know, 110 pound woman who predominantly rides the trainer and she's in her second year of triathlon, she can produce workouts and, and do everything amazing in this position is super comfortable on the trainer on Zwift. And then you put her out on the road the first time and she goes flying across the road, like a kite. Cause she can't handle this equipment or position out in real world conditions. And suddenly, you know, all that fitness that they worked on so hard is out the window because they can't, you know, they, they can't actually hold their bike upright and, and ride it and then be able to run off of it. You know, they're exhausted from trying to handle that. So you'd be better off to take that athlete and say, yeah, this isn't as aggressive a position, but I'm going to put you maybe on, on this bike in this position with this equipment and you're going to be able to ride it really solid and strong and, and go fast and run well. And that's going to be a faster trap on overall. So I think having this conversation up front with people who are starting out is is important. And that can be a hard conversation because they see all this fancy equipment and they might think, well, how come I don't get to play with that yet? And you say, you will, we'll work up to that. But first it's like, you know, it's like when you build a house, we're not going to put the walls up before we put the foundation down. So um, that's, I think, a really, really important thing to address in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you see guys like uh, like Jan, who has got a crazy narrow arm arm position. And, yeah, it looks fast. And it, it is fast. But that takes – I'm sure he didn't start out like that, right? He spent years getting his, his elbows closer and closer together. And, and that – I mean, the more narrow you are, like the more squirrely the bike is. So it's definitely, has to evolve over time. So you're, you're comfortable in those positions.
2: And I think in triathlon, so many people go to races and you like, look at who's fit or who's fast and you can perform really well without a aggressive position. And you can also be in pretty terrible shape, but like maybe you used to do the sport at a high level. So you can like ride that position. Um, as my girlfriend often reminds me, like, how come you get to do that? Oh, well, I rode a lot, but like, sure, I'm real slow now, but like, I know how to do the skill, you know? Um, and I think that's one thing to remember when you go to a race and you're like, oh, so-and-so rides like that. You don't necessarily know that person's history. And you also don't know if it negatively affected them. So if you see everyone that's riding really aggressively, usually one of two things has happened. Either they have this big background in the sport and they can handle that position or the position's just biting them in the butt. So just because you see people doing that doesn't necessarily mean you yourself need to do it as well.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I just want to hit home that main point of being comfortable again. And, and another thing that I did is I spent a year teaching PE a long time ago and, and taught a bunch of kids how to ride bikes. So we rode bikes in, in a field and watching their progression through getting better at, at riding next to each other and putting their hands on each other and high-fiving each other while riding and and riding one-handed, riding no-handed, doing some skills like that, and then getting much better it kind of really made me see how that can totally relate to adults learning how to ride a bike and being more comfortable. And I think that doing a few, a few drills or a few skills, things like that regularly, or especially at the beginning of the season, especially going from like trainer season to outdoor season can really help how comfortable you feel on the bike. Even now, every, every year when I start riding outdoors again, or a little bit more, I spend five minutes at the beginning of a ride or the end of a ride, hitting a parking lot and doing like figure eights. It's just some things like that to work on like turning and cornering and feeling comfortable on the bike. So I think that adding in a little bit of skills work, it can, really go a long way in how people feel on the bike. And, and obviously that transfers to how well they can ride the bike.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, I add to that, Jesse, is that, you know, the first two years that the ASU collegiate program was up and running, I helped cliff English, um, just as a volunteer coach on the bikes with the girls. And, you know, a lot of them were, he's obviously amazing at his job at recruiting the right, the right athletes. And, um, a lot of these girls hadn't really ridden bikes. They were phenomenal athletes, but maybe they came from a run background and, And we spent two days a week just on a soccer field doing skills, you know, follow the leader pylons. Uh, They did all kinds of transitions. He would, you know, spin them around and then run to a rack, grab their bike, have to jump on their bike, then follow the leader, you know, um, through pylons. We did bumping drills, all all kinds of different drills, Um, pick up bottles on the grass. Uh, And it was through the whole front end of the season literally two days a week for the whole first two years. And if you watch those girls now, I mean, he's got them going to all kinds of, you know, continental cups and world cups. And they've, they've just developed from some of them from pretty much weren't even ever on a bike in their life or a very limited experience to, to rate up at the top level of the sport. So that was really cool to be a part of that and see, see how important that is right from the ground up. So there's a lot of value in that for sure, for all of us to visit
2: that. Another thing I want to talk about is uh, is clothing. Definitely, I think a lot of people want to talk about comfort on a bike. They often forget clothing. You can go out in shorts and a jersey. And and I realize when you watch cycling on TV, people are often w- watching people in shorts and a jersey, especially like if if it's the Tour de France or something. That's most people's first time watching. Um, some bike racing, but I think you need to remember, like, if you're riding even in 55 degrees, it's it's usually going to help you to have some arm warmers or a vest or something like that. Um, and if you're riding in colder temperatures, you you really want to keep your legs warm. You want to keep your core warm. Uh, so along the lines, like, being comfortable, being warm enough is definitely cool. And and with the factor of wind chill, you know, like. You're always riding at a high speed. You're going to need, you have to need more clothes than you think you do. And if you're ever climbing up a mountain, you get into a big situation when you're climbing, when you're descending that mountain, you want more clothes. And so, yes, you might have to stop a little bit and, and rearrange your clothes, but it's, it's always going to help you in the long run to, to be warm and comfortable.
0: Awesome. Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to just mention before we move on is that I think, when you're in the beginning stages, you can take a real, a real like moment of reflection and analyze what your strengths and weaknesses are on the bike. And that can be a great stepping stone for what you need to do. Right? Like I, I know I'm not a great cornerer, So it's a skill that I work on, right? You can kind of ride with people that are better than you and figure out what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and, and come up with a clear plan on what you need to work on. So I I think that's it it's a good strategy for, for people that are beginning on the bike. Agreed.
1: Yeah. I would say the, the very next step for, um, if once we're, you know, sort of rocking and rolling through those stages, if I'm riding with someone who's new to the road and they're, they're, they're on the right equipment and they're starting to work on the skills and all those things, the very next thing that I, I really like to work on them with is understanding gearing. So it's really, A common mistake for triathletes to just get kind of stuck in one gear. And I remind them all the time, you know, go ahead and shift. And, you know, the road kicks up a little bit, you want to shift down to an easier gear. The road slopes down a little bit, click it into one harder gear. And to really get comfortable with that range of gears and being able to keep the bike's momentum as much as possible. And then along with that, changing positions to be able to keep that momentum. So, you see a lot of triathletes that kind of get stuck in one gear and they also kind of get stuck in that time trial position thinking, you know, I'm a triathlete. I'm meant to ride arrow. I got to stay here. And, you know, arrow is only good to a certain point. There's going to be certain terrains in the road where it's better to stand up. It's better to if it, sit up and, and you're going to climb a little bit quicker. There's other times where you want to be as arrow as possible and locked into that TT position and understand how to tuck under the wind. But, You know, rolling one step further from that comfort level we talked about, once we're past the basics, it's like, okay, let's start to understand shifting through the gears, small chain ring to big chain ring, through the whole ranges of your gears, read the road, read the terrain and the wind, and know, hey, we can shift to get the most out of that fitness that we've built and get the most speed out of our bike by changing up positions and changing up gears. I think, you know, that's where a lot of people, they maybe miss that step for a long time. I see some pretty fast Ironman athletes. I've seen like nine and a half, nine hour guys who just walk into that TT position and grind it out and they never change gears. And I think, you know, you can, you could shift and your bike's going to go just a little faster for a little less energy. If you, if you get comfortable with that. So.
2: Shift early, shift often. That's (laughs) what I like to say.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Early and often. All right. Um, yeah, I think there's that moment in time, right. When you're, you're going like a certain speed and if you shift right then, then your bike stays going the same speed. And then if you wait, then there's that slowdown. And if you react after that, then you're trying to get your bike back up to speed and accelerating takes infinitely more energy than maintaining that speed. Right. So if you slow down and then shift and then try and like get. Your bike back up to speed, then you're working a lot harder than if you just shifted at that exact moment, kept your cadence the same and were able to just maintain that speed. So really thinking about that, that cadence speed power relationship in order to help your bike go as fast as it can with, let's say the same amount of power.
1: Yeah, you said with cornering, Jesse, I mean, that's a major thing. A lot of these courses now that have a lot of corners and loop courses and stuff, you know, understanding the the tangents of the road and knowing what gear to shift down, you know, where you shift down to so that you, as, as you turn, when do you break into that turn? How much speed can you carry through it, even if it's a slowdown, Elliot? Um, and then being in, you know, the correct gear when you come out of that turn so that you can get your bike up to speed really quickly without, you know... Seeing you've seen we've seen it before when someone we call it being over geared out of a turn and their bike actually slows down and sort of weaving all over the road and they're they're using a huge amount of energy, whereas if they shifted down before the turn, picked their line, got through the turn, and were able to pick up a good cadence and good speed and hold a steady line out of that turn, it's just going to be so much more efficient, so much faster, so much less energy. And and every time we do that, then you know, we're not only going faster, but we're doing it for less energy. So, uh, you know, these are, we're starting to touch on the more advanced things, but I think going from being comfortable, but comfortable to then the next step of comfortable is get comfortable with moving around on the bike and reading the road and shifting through your gears and understanding what that feels like the lulls and the increases in speed and, and power
2: and stuff like that, that you were talking about, Jesse. And so then you're talking about shifting and we're talking about the roads going up and down. And then we're firmly in the advanced camp. Um, where's the wind, where's it coming from? How's it blowing you around? Um, and, and I think that's just kind of like this, it's the same thing, except it's ever changing. And and sometimes you're lucky enough that like the, ch- the wind is constant from one direction and you're on a big flat road and you don't have to think about it that all that often, but the wind is constantly changing and you can't necessarily like, see it coming. So that's where like the early and often, like, if you get that big headwind, you're probably better off, like, don't fight it for five minutes while you're sitting in, in the middle of an Ironman, just shift right away, you know, when you get that headwind and, and, and find that moment.
0: Yeah, I don't know why it seems like everyone's intuition is like, oh, there's a headwind, I'm slowing down, I need to grab a bigger gear and just push through and I see people do that all the time. We're like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to like muscle my way through. And all of a sudden their cadence is like down to 70 and they're like, ah, and, and doing exactly what Elliot said, like saying, okay, I need to like adjust appropriately for this, keep my cadence wherever I like it to be shift down and keep the, keep the effort the same. But then also knowing like how you position yourself on your bike, right? You're going to hold a. Different body position if you have a rip and tailwind than if you're working really hard into a giant headwind. So, being comfortable moving around on the bike. And I remember I was working at camp and we were going up a climb and I started standing. And I had this one girl look at me and she was like, You can stand on your TT bike? Like, it was totally like she had no idea you were able to, like, she had a road bike and she could do it on a road bike. But I think she, had a too far forward position so that she wasn't as comfortable doing that on her TT bikes. So that may be like an equipment thing as well. But I think that's definitely like a, a comfort thing too. Like you need to feel comfortable standing and moving and moving around on your bike in order to kind of get the most out of it. I think the, the biggest thing with a TT bike is yes, there's
2: aero bars. Yes. Riding in the aero bars is often the fastest way, but it's not a hundred percent of the time. You know, there's There's tons of times where whether it's climbing, whether you're doing a a massive descent, like it's often faster to descend, not in the aero bars, even on a TT bike, especially if, if you have like a, a big giant, uh, like crosswind or something like that, you often need the control of, of the bars to have control of that front wheel. Um, I lost my train of thought, but yes, there you go.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to, to even talk about skills just a little bit more, I'll share a real personal story is that. You know, when I first started riding, I I started mostly on the trainer in, in Calgary, Canada, where, you know, nine months of the year we rode the trainer and the rest of the time we we're out on straight roads, went straight up or straight down and you had a headwind or tailwind. So not a lot of turns or curves or twisty turns. And so the first time I went to a place where there was actually descents with, with, you know, corners to navigate and that kind of thing was San Francisco, which is pretty aggressive type you know, it was like the redwood forest and these tiny little roads that basically only a car would fit on and, and the cliffs down the side of them. And I was terror. I was very, very fit. And I would, had been riding for a while, but I was terrified of these descents and I wasn't really taught how to descend. And it was, it became, it became a real problem. I could actually go faster uphill than I could downhill. And the first time I went to Christchurch, New Zealand, to meet my coach, Scott, I, I had told him through many conversations, like I'm, descending is a problem. And then the first time we descended together, it was like, Oh boy, <laughs> this is, this is really bad. We're going to have to fix this. And for literally for years, it was, it was a big issue. I could lose a race in my skills and my downhill skills. It was so bad. I was absolutely terrified. My neck would be killing me by the end. My hands, I was, you know, would go from leading to just way out the back. And, I finally committed to working with someone who knew how to teach me how to descend properly. And it wasn't just, Hey, follow me. You know, how many times have some of us have been scared to descend say, Hey, follow me. And then the person just gone. And you're like, still terrified. You're like, I don't know, my bike jutters through the turn. I can't see the lines. I'm not feeling like that. I feel like I'm going to slide out, you know, all of these things. And so you're just breaking, going slower and slower, sitting more and more upright. And someone actually took the time to, break down and specifically teach me how to descend and did it at a pace that I was comfortable with. And it was kind of like skiing. Like once I found that rhythm and I actually started to feel those things, then all of a sudden, then the speed increased. And I've actually done, if you go on my YouTube channel, I have like, people have recorded me doing the specific talk just so I don't take up the whole podcast time explaining it. But there's, I've done many clinics now on descending and taught people how to do it because I literally went from, I could go faster uphill than downhill. I pretty much could walk faster downhill. That's how bad I was at it. To now, if you descend with me, you would think like, well, she must've always been just great at descending. Cause I'll go down like a complete cause kamikaze. And it's, um, but that took time and that took, it literally took someone teaching me the, how to do it. I, I needed to learn the the breakdown on what it was supposed to feel like and, and like the physical breakdown of what was meant to happen in each moment so that I could create that sensation. And that's the pieces that I, I had never been
2: taught in the beginning. The, the great thing is everything you were just discussing, like all the beginning skills we were talking about. Oh, you're a total beginner. Like cornering and braking and getting comfortable in that position, like where you find yourself on the bike, like those were probably all of the things you had to do to get comfortable. And then as you get more and more advanced, the thing you have to remember on a bike is you can't progress at someone else's speed. You have to progress at your own speed. And it, if, you're, if your friend happens to be significantly faster at you at descending, it's not going to help you to just ride their wheel. You know, like I literally lost a bike down the side of a mountain for a while trying to chase Sam Schultz, who's like national champion mountain biker Olympian. Um, cause I was taking that approach. Oh, you know, just ride, ride behind the guy. Who's the, one of the best descenders in the world. You never do that on skis, right? You wouldn't be just like, oh no, I'll just follow this guy. (laughs) Yeah. You, you wouldn't. I, I mean, I knew better. I was just giving it a go. It was a bad idea, but, um, but it's fun. Um, but you also have to understand there's a lot of risk and, and with, when you're riding on pavement, like it's scary, take it at your own pace. And like, you can, like, uh, you're gonna get there as long as you treat it as a skill that you can get better at. And, and sometimes it's just like, breathing and finding the line and it's just, you know, like like swimming, you're you're trying to find your stroke, you're trying to find your rhythm down the hill and every hill is going to be a little bit different, but giving yourself kind of that mental space to treat it as a project that you really can get better at is probably the biggest step towards like getting to those advanced levels of descending.
0: Got to keep that growth mindset.
2: Yeah. Right. I didn't realize I was going to get into that spiel, but there we are. <laughs>
0: All right, what about speed in general? Like what are, if you're going to give a couple of, a couple of tips or on ways to just make the bike go even faster, do you have any, any little tidbits that are kind of take homes on, on ways to go from making the bike go pretty fast to really fast?
2: I think the Marilyn was talking about the the time, like the timing of your shifting. And, and then there's also the timing of your power and, and connecting when you're like doing a really big like let's say we're talking about bike racing and you're doing a big acceleration you can time those accelerations those bursts of power with like as you're shifting through the gears you can't just shift and hope it's going to work like there's that momentary second where the chain's not on the cog and that's not a great time to put out power but like once it's switched then you can ramp that up um and then i think the other thing is being just being aware of like literally everything on the road and using the wind and momentum to your advantage at all times. Um, so, I think the biggest thing is not putting out a lot of power when the wind or downhill is giving you an advantage um, and being okay when you have a short, short period of time. Like, if you have a short climb to get over, it you can make that point of, oh, I can surge over that climb and be over it in five seconds, or I can pace over it and it's going to take me 12 well, maybe you should surge, but you need to make sure that, you know, how, how many times am I going to have to do this in the race course? So I think like you realize I could go over that faster, but if this is a 112 mile ride and maybe I'm not that fit, it's probably a bad idea. If you're doing a sprint distance triathlon and there's only two of them, probably it's worth that acceleration in that long distance time trial. I don't know. That's kind of where my mind first went.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I think that the timing of the shifting and then knowing that like that a speed curve is exponential, right? It takes exponentially more power, the faster you're going. So if you have a tailwind and you're going 35 miles an hour to try and go 36 miles an hour is going to take you way more Watts than when you turn around and you want to go one mile an hour faster, the other direction. So knowing when is a good place to apply that power and when you're going to get the most speed for that power over the course of the ride is going to kind of be ever-changing so kind of thinking about that and then like we were talking a little bit about earlier is that that positioning like when you have that rip and tailwind it's probably not worth it to be like hunkered down face between your bars you can probably relax and sit up a little bit maybe even lean back on the bike get some different muscle groups engaged and, and catch a little bit more of that wind with your body kind of using your body as a sail and then if say you have that headwind, then it's time to really focus on, on staying super low, getting your head down and trying to get as much of your body underneath that wind as you can. And then making sure you're kind of in, in that right gear so that, so that you're good and then, you know, keeping, keeping super even power, I think is also a, a something you can work on where the more close your average normalized power are together, right? The, the less cost you're going to have metabolically on on yourself
2: that's, yes, but yeah. And the longer the, the race, the more important that is right. The one one thing
1: I would add to that to give people food for thought or to try in their training and, and, you know, see where that, to make that next step, we're talking about shifting and body position, that kind of stuff. But, uh, I have my athletes do a lot of, um, RPM variance type work. Sometimes we do extreme and high RPM stuff. Sometimes we do, you know, extreme and low RPM strengths type stuff. And then we call it, there's gonna be that ideal RPM for that athlete to race at. And that's gonna be dependent on the type of athlete you are. Some, some athletes are gonna be more efficient at, you know, 88 to 92 RPMs. And that's where going to, they're, that shifting that we're talking about, that sort of like sweet spot of rhythm where you find you can carry the most speed and r- and momentum on your bike is going to be dependent on the type of athlete where you're most efficient in for racing at what RPM. So you train the full broad range, you might do some high RPM work, you do some low RPM work, you do some TT, and you find that most efficient spot for you. And then be able to always work with that within these, you know, conditions and grades and stuff that we're talking about. And and always find that like, oh, when I'm, when I'm, locked into my rhythm at this RPM, I carry the most amount of speed. I know for me, like I can be going on a 2% to 4% downhill and I'm smaller than a lot of the guys that I ride with, but I can put it in a big gear and know that if I'm at 105 to 110 RPM, I'm going to ride away from a lot of them because I can get really little and low on the bike, put it in a pretty big gear and wind up my RPMs. And I'll end up going quite a bit faster on that kind of grade than say, some six foot two dude who's actually pretty big and and just doesn't know that about himself to be able to ride downhill really fast. So I think you can get a lot of speed out of your bike if you start to play around with those RPM ranges and find where your sweet spots are. I see a lot of bikes sort of wall backwards when people get, they don't understand that they think, well, I'm just going to grind along at 60 forever. Now, some people 60 is their is their sweet spot. Uh, A lot of triathletes I see pretty comfortable riding around at that 72 RPM and they're, they're happy there and they can handle their bikes well there and run well off it and all that stuff. But, um, I think you're going to learn to keep your bike going fast when you understand what RPM range you race the best at and most efficiently at. So I think adding that into your training and playing around with it, you're going to learn a little bit about how to make your bike go faster.
2: And then I've got, uh, two more short points, but one, um, as far as like making your bike go faster, we're talking specifically about like long, long distance triathlon or, or even medium distance, right. Any draft non draft triathlon, um, it's using your competitors as a carrot and a pace setter and like letting your mind then not have to focus as much on pacing, And then you can focus more on that efficient pedal stroke that Marilyn just talked about or how you're positioned on your bike and just kind of like getting as comfortable as you can while someone else sets the pace, but also knowing like you have to be able to make those decisions. Is this the right pace for me or is it not? So you you like kind of have that in the back of your mind, but if you're just following someone and you catch someone that's kind of like that great pace, it allows you to focus on all these other things so much more. Um, And then also being aware that like, Sometimes that's not the pace to go and you, you just kind of need to ignore it. Um, but I, I do think like personally, that that's a way you can kind of like get a little bit of free speed, having one less thing on your mind. Um, the other thing is the timing of when you eat and drink. And I think the big thing is if you're going slower, it's probably a better time for you to eat and drink and the, like you become less aerodynamic if you're going 40 miles an hour. So maybe that's not the best time for you to eat or drink. Also, it's not the best time to have one less hand available for breaking, um, just so you stay alive till the end of the race. But generally speaking, like, when are you going to eat and drink? It's usually when you're going slower and not going through a corner. Um, So that's just kind of like a basic thing that a lot of people don't think about, but timing of when you eat and drink.
0: Yeah. I see a lot of athletes with a timer and I think a timer is a great tool to make sure you're eating at the appropriate spaced out intervals. But I think having a little leeway with that so that you actually can say, okay, well, I know I'm going to, you know, hit this slight uphill in five minutes. I'm going to wait five minutes and then I'll be able to eat a little more then than trying to like get out of the bars at like you said, 40 miles an hour, where you're going to lose 10 miles an hour instantly, and then have to try and gain that back somehow
1: other thing too is um you know if we're talking about racing fast is knowing your course and knowing where the fastest parts of the pavement are and how to cut the tangents in a way that the course allows and and what i mean by that if you for example sometimes you can go to a race course the days before and ride it when the roads are open and you know the there's traffic and all of those things and a really good example of that is the um uh challenge Roth or wrote as they would say, I guess I'm pronouncing it not the right way, but if you ride that course on the days leading in or the weeks leading in, it is like for some people a good 15, 20 minutes slower than on race day when the car, when it's close to traffic and you can take the fastest lines on the road and cut all the tangents and the corners. So if you know that course, you know, it's going to be close to traffic on race day and you know, those corners you know, of course, like Ironman Wisconsin, like Placid, you know, there's a lot of courses. There's some courses out there where it doesn't really matter. It's just a straight line, straight out and back with a one U-turn. No big deal, right? But if you got some of these more technical courses, like Wisconsin, uh, Louisville, Lake Placid, all right, the... Ironman Canada Penticton course, where knowing where the fastest lines are and and where all those tangents are, that can make a significant difference in your overall bike time for for no energy at all, right? I mean, you're, it's like free speed right there. So that's things to to think about when you're choosing your courses and and you know maybe you get a chance to go ride it the weeks before, or months before, and that kind of thing.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think even now you can do it at least a somewhat decent job looking at some of that stuff before you go, you can watch YouTube videos of the course and at least gain a little bit of insight. I think obviously riding it with no cars would be the best way, but it's not always, uh, not always able to do that. Yeah. Those European races, how about uh, Nice, you know,
1: 70.3 worlds in Nice. I mean, I used to race in Nice every year at Ironman France and Knowing those descents versus not knowing those descents. I mean, that is like game changer in terms of how fast you're gonna go.
2: I was well, I mean, wasn't Rudy von Bur- I mean, he got third in the world, so obviously he's super strong, but I, I believe he like grew up descending that road,
1: yeah. I mean, if you he, know he, those he, descents? He,
2: yeah, and he crushed everyone on the descent. Yeah. and you're just like, Holy smokes. But I mean, then you also realize like, well, he put in the time, like maybe he didn't realize he was doing it when he was growing, but if he put, if he put in the time, like that's how you get better, um, putting in the time and, and riding those descents.
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of ways to get speed on a bike that are beyond, of course, we need to use these fitness development workouts that we do, and they're really, really important. But I think what we're talking about today is, What can we do beyond just being really strong and really fit on our bikes to go faster? Because ultimately, you know, in triathlon, the whole idea is to make your bike go as fast as possible for the least amount of energy so that you can run really fast. Right. I mean, that is ultimately, I mean, if you can, I mean, Jesse, if you could ride like 405 to 410 every time on every course and then get off and, you know, run 2:45. that would be, that'd be pretty sweet, right? Like, um, so like that's, you want to run, you want to make your bike go as you, you get really, really fit. And we do these workouts to improve our fitness. And then like from the ground up, when we very, very first start, you know, clipping in and pedaling, that's where it begins that we become these proficient bike riders. So we can say, let's get this thing going as fast as possible for the least amount of energy so that we can really, really run fast. If you're an ITU racer, where it's draft legal. I mean, that's, that's a whole nother podcast right there, but, um but yeah, I think, I think there's lots of different places to dive into, to make these, make these machines go fast.
0: And I mean, fast is fun, right? So
2: <laughs> winning's fun too. Yeah.
0: Awesome. That was a lot of fun guys.
2: I think, did we cover everything? Good to go.
0: Yeah. I feel good with that.
2: Awesome.
0: Yeah. journey. I mean, I could talk oh, about for forever
1: and all the different ways to make a bike go fast It's obviously my favorite, but, uh, I, I definitely, I think this is a good start for people and good foundation. So fun stuff.
2: Yeah, I think it was good. Thanks, Jesse.
0: Awesome. Thank you guys. And Thank if you. anyone has any questions, feel free to, to reach out to any of us and we'd love to help you in your triathlon journeys, especially in making your bikes go super fast.
2: And well, not just questions, but if you guys have even specific topics, we'd love to hear those too.
0: So. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.